Welcome to MedTech on Air. I'm Gianluca Painetti, and I'm joined today via phone by Jesus Rueda Rodriguez, MedTech Europe's Director of International Affairs. Welcome, Jesus. Thank you, Gianluca. It's a pleasure to be here. Jesus, you and I sat down a couple of months ago, precisely on the 13th of February, and we were already talking about coronavirus, but the world since then has changed a lot. Uh, the coronavirus has been declared a pandemic by the WHO. It has now more than 2 million cases confirmed worldwide. And many states across the world have gone into stringent lockdown measures to contain the spread uh, of, of this pandemic. Um, now we, we start seeing me, uh, more and more countries talking about the confinement and about how do we ease the measures, how we get out of this. So this is what I want to talk uh, about today with you. But before we get into that, maybe we can you can help me retrace a little bit the last couple of months in terms of what has happened uh, in the industry. What have, what have been the efforts that the medical technology industry has put in place to support the response against this pandemic? Thank you, Gianluca. So... When it comes to the response uh, on the pandemic, there has been an awful lot of work going on by all of the sectors concerned. And basically, we have seen that there are three sectors that have been going into overdrive within medical technology to help to combat this pandemic. So we have uh, the diagnostic space in order to put together diagnostic tests um, to be able to detect and, and understand the spread of the virus and see who's getting infected and also who, who recovers from the infections. We've had a lot of work on the personal protective equipment to make sure that healthcare workers are safe and other people are, are not exposed to the virus. And then that's been a huge um, effort as well. And finally, there's been a lot of work. Um, the headlines are on ventilators, but it really has been on ICU care overall, you know, to be able to provide care to patients that need um, intensive care to be able to overcome the disease and to be able to recover from, from the infection. And this is critical because it's, it's one of those areas that has been seen as a bit of a bottleneck in healthcare. So there's been massive efforts in ramping up uh, the capacity there in particular. And I'm assuming, uh, looking at uh, deconfinement plans, so we see now, for example, where we are in Belgium, the state has already presented its deconfinement plan. There are uh, plans coming out in Italy and other countries, Germany, for example, we see that medical technology will keep playing a central role into informing uh, how decisions about uh, getting out of this lockdown are taken. Uh, we we hear about uh, mandatory wearing of uh, masks, for example, or extensive testing to the population. Uh, so I, I, not many things will change for the medical technology industry in this sense. But how do these products and technologies uh, help, uh, specifically the masks and, and the tests? Well, looking at um, the deconfinement, uh, there is a necessity in order to get out of the confinement measures. The, the main goal of um, all of the health authorities is to, you know, to get people back out there without having the second peak of infection that is potentially very dangerous. And uh, unfortunately, we have been seeing in, in some countries that the second peak does come back and it can be worse than the first one. We've seen this happening in Singapore, 
We have seen it happening in some areas of Japan. Uh, China is now starting to have a, a second peak of infection as well. Um, we'll see just how bad that gets. So it is clear that coming out of, of, of confinement is something that has to be managed very carefully. And there are several aspects to this. The first aspect is you need to be able to test the people. Okay. Now, in the ideal world, we'd be testing everyone for everything. Um, in practice, we do have a limit on the amount of tests that are being made available. Our industry has gone overboard in trying to produce these tests. I've heard figures as much as a 50% increase in production capacity. That's 50 times. Just consider this. You know, If you were talking about a car manufacturer and you were to tell them, oh, next month I want you to make 50 times more cars than last month, it would simply be impossible. But that's the kind of effort that's being put forward by the industries here to try to keep up. And even then, it is very difficult to keep up. And we have two kinds of tests that are being put out there. Um, there are the tests that enable you to detect the presence of the virus itself. And then there are the tests that allow you to detect um, the response, the immune response of a patient to the virus. So the first tests, uh, you have uh, antigen, but also more commonly um, nucleic acid PCR tests that are used uh, to detect the virus. So if you're detecting the virus, you need to have, it's usually a, a swab taken from um, the nasopharyngeal swab down the nose and to the back of the throat to try to get some sample of the virus and figure out, okay, does the patient have an infection or not? Uh, it's not always easy because very early in the infection, the infection might not be detected because there are very few virus particles actually present. But by and large, the, the, the good PCR assays, they will get you a very, very good response. But it takes a little bit of time to run them. It's not an immediate result. Uh, and that's one of the things that need to be managed. How do we get the result out there fast enough? There are also the option to do um, different tests with regards to checking the immune status of the patient. And these could be some very rapid tests. Um, they can tell you if a patient has been infected, but it's not so simple for them to say that a patient is actively having an infection. Now, normally what a physician would do is if the patient is displaying symptoms and has an immune response, you assume they have the virus. But if you have a patient that doesn't have symptoms, it's very difficult to tell if they have an active infection or not just from the um, immune tests. And the other thing that people are looking at uh, from the point of view of the immune tests is trying to figure out, is a patient, does it really have immunity to the, to the virus? Are they going to catch it again or not? And unfortunately, at this stage, we just cannot say. And we cannot say because we don't have enough information about the virus. And we don't have enough information about our response to the virus. So both of those together make it very difficult to when you're detecting the antibodies of a person to really be able to say yes they have immunity or no they don't have immunity whereas if i were to do a hepatitis test today we know hepatitis very well we can make that decision but not yet for the coronavirus and and i'm uh, i'm assuming that this this last aspect that you mentioned is quite important because now it's it's a shared knowledge that uh, going back to normal uh, means going back to a very different normal. So moving out of uh, into phase two doesn't mean that 
societies will reopen and we will go back to our lives without the virus because as you said there are peaks coming back in china and singapore so we will have to live with uh, this virus for a while so really to understand these aspects about immunity and how do we use testing is is extremely important in understanding how we uh, we implement a safe phase two Exactly. That's really important because in the phase two, like I said, you really have to stop the infection. You just cannot just go back to normal. So most of the countries and what we're seeing specifically here in Europe, and there's been a very um, extensive roadmap put forward by the commission, how they would like to see things moving forward. And many of the national measures take that into consideration. It's always a phased approach. It doesn't all happen at once. So little by little, you know, essential work has carried out throughout the crisis, and then that opens up to other sectors. So it opens up, society opens up sector by sector rather than all at once. And it's also based on how we see the virus spreading during that time. And in this case, another thing that's really important to take care of as deconfinement begins is to maintain a good protection from the point of view, on the one hand, of social distancing, but also of personal protection. And here, what we see is that there is a huge demand, especially for masks, because as it's a respiratory disease, the main route of infection, it could be others, but the main route of infection is really if you breathe the virus. Okay, now that's very clear. And so there is a very strong support for the idea that you need to protect your airway, you need to protect what you breathe. Uh, masks are ideal for this. And in the ideal world, we would all have these FFP2 masks that provide the best protection. But an FFP2 mask is very, for one thing, it's very complicated to wear that all day long. You know, they're not comfortable at all. I've worn them, I've worn them before. Uh, it, it, it takes uh, a lot of effort to wear them. It, it actually makes it harder to breathe. It doesn't help you out in that regard. And so it is essential that these masks are continuously made available to healthcare professionals the people that are taking care of the sick, because they are the ones that are the most likely to get exposed to the virus, obviously. And they need to be able to continue to work. And it's, it's been one of the tragedies of this outbreak is how many healthcare professionals have been taking the brunt of the infections and the brunt of the, even the, the death rates because they get much higher exposures than most normal people would if, if their protection systems fail. So we have to make sure that there is a continuous availability to healthcare professionals on this. And in fact, there have been extraordinary efforts to ensure that this is the case. So not only has production ramped up enormously of masks, but also we've started to ship in masks by air freight so that they arrive immediately. Many of these masks are made in Southeast Asia. Not so many are made in Europe. And we're flying them all in. It used to be that we would put them on a boat and it would take seven, eight weeks to get here. That's no longer acceptable. We need them all as fast as possible and we bring them in as fast as we can make them. But... The, the downside of that is that it becomes really difficult to supply everybody with these masks. And so we start to have many recommendations coming out on face coverings so that people can make uh, face coverings out of different kinds of tissues and the textile industry has gone into overdrive into making these things as well. So that everybody that goes out in the context of, of a deconfinement will have their nose and their mouth covered by uh, some kind of protection. Now, Face coverings don't provide the same level of protection as, as, as a mask will do, 
but they definitely slow the spread of the virus and they stop the spread of the virus in many situations, which is really, really important. So that's why it's important for everybody to wear some kind of face protection, face covering to be able to minimize the spread of the virus. Yeah. And, and as you say, I mean, this, this virus has really changed, uh, for example, the way the supply chain works. So you, you talk about moving from, uh, from uh, shipping to air freight. Um, has changed the way we live. I mean, we, we now are used in a certain way to social distancing and has also changed the way that uh, healthcare systems uh, work. So they have been working under constant stress, under constant pressure in emergency and probably focusing most of their capacity to really uh, respond to the coronavirus pandemic. How does that change into phase two? And how do we keep into account, for example, the fact that phase two could become again phase one for a short period of time? Uh, how do healthcare systems adapt and how do we keep also providing care to those who are not affected by coronavirus? That, that, that's a very good point. I mean, when you're talking about patient care, and it's really important that we care for these patients, um, the most important thing for the coronavirus patients have been respiratory support, and unfortunately for many of them, they need intensive care. They need intensive care units to function around this. And this has shown um, in a massive spike in the demand, especially for ventilators, when people need to be intubated and provided with air to breathe. Um, there has been a massive effort put together. You were mentioning supply chains. The ventilator manufacturers have gone out. They've increased their production capacity several times over. They've reached out to other industries like the automotive industry, the aerospace industries that are able to help strengthen their supply chain so that, you know, it's not only the number of ventilators you make, but you start, start to need different motors and parts and filters and what have you to make these things so that they can keep up. All of our industrial network is being drawn into that so you can keep the ICU working. And that draws in other aspects of ICU. So you have things like critical renal care to make sure that when the kidneys fail, they maintain. It's one of the side effects of the coronavirus. We need to have people that have infusion systems so that they can get the sedatives and can be put in a situation where they can safely receive the intubation. So this whole ICU medicine has shifted to coronavirus massively in the last few months. Um, some people describe it as war medicine because it's massively increased ICU capacity in order to do that. But when we're looking at the second peak and when we're looking at trying to return to a more steady state, one of the things that we've also seen is that just because we have the coronavirus doesn't stop other people from being sick. So you have people that suffer from diabetes, you have people that um, fall over and, and have to be taken to hospital because of a trauma, you have people that are having all kinds of situations dealing with acute conditions, being a heart condition or chronic conditions like the need for renal support, dialysis, these kind of patients all need to be supported. They, they, they don't stop. Things don't stop for these patients simply because um, coronavirus is going on. And so we have seen that medicine has changed and the delivery of medicine has adapted insofar as possible. We have seen that um, during the peak of the crisis, there's been a lot of deployment and use of telemedicine in order to manage patients that have chronic conditions that are known insofar as possible. Particular uh, care has been taken for those patients that do need to come into hospital for whatever reason. So you have patients that come in for their dialysis or patients that come in for their chemotherapy or have you, things that 
really cannot be postponed and needs to be taken care of um, on a regular basis. And so these things um, have been happening. Uh, each healthcare system has dealt with it in a slightly different way, but under extraordinary circumstances. And when we're talking about returning back to normal, one of the things that we need to return back to some level of normality is overall healthcare. And how is that going to happen? It's going to be very interesting because whereas many chronic patients have been receiving some level of care throughout the outbreak because it was essential for them, for them to survive, and there have been many patients that have been putting off certain medical interventions which were not life-threatening and could be put off for a while. Things like, for example, if you need a hip replacement, you don't, it doesn't make a huge difference if you have it today or if you have it in a few weeks' time, but you still need it. So what we're going to be seeing is that um, the hospital capacity is going to be shifting. So whereas right now it's all the pneumologists and infection disease experts that have been going into overdrive, when we start up again, for example, orthopedic surgeons are going to have a massive backlog of surgeries that need to take place because they've been waiting in the, in the sidelines for this to clear up. And that's one of the reasons why it's important that we try to manage the peak properly because we will continue to have a steady flux of patients that suffer from the coronavirus as we open up. That's inevitable. But we want to keep that to the lowest level as possible so that the rest of the healthcare system can recover and continue to provide patient care to everyone concerned. I think that things, though, will not go back to how they were before. That's, that's not how this plays out. We have become much more adept and much more clear on how to use, for example, remote medicine and telemedicine. We have experienced and had a massive experiment on how we can provide care at a distance and how people can take more direct action in their own personal care. And some of these things are going to remain. Some of these things are going to be expanded upon so that we can be more efficient in our healthcare delivery. So this is really important going forward. These are things that were always talked about for some time, you know, we've been talking about this for years, but now it has had to happen. Now it's happened. Our healthcare systems are geared up for it now. And so it would be rather unfortunate if we just went back. And I don't think that's going to happen because there are definite benefits in these, in, in these things that are going to mean. For example, I'm, I'm an asthma sufferer. Normally I would go in at the start of the allergy season, which is now I'd go see my, my doctor, they would check on me, you know, do a number of things then give me uh, support for what I needed on my medication. This time, it was only a few phone calls and everything was sorted out. And it worked out just fine. And I think a lot of patients would have had that kind of experience uh, going forward. Yeah, and that will be will be certainly very interesting to see. Maybe we can touch base on, on this specific aspect again in the future. Hopefully, we can also do that while being in the same room. Um, and so t thank you, Jesus, for, again, a very, very interesting conversation. Uh, we, we, we've talked a lot about, about a lot of aspects of how we actually get out of this uh, crisis, the importance of testing, the uh, importance of uh, appropriate protection, and how do we keep uh, and do we go back to providing care to those who need it, who are not affected by coronavirus in new ways, in old ways. So we, we will see how that plays out moving forward. So thank you, Jesus. Thank you so much. Stay safe. You too. 
Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or SoundCloud. And if you want to know more about medical technology, visit our website at medtechurope.org and follow us on social media.